0: Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about French history and culture. If you're anything like me, Christmas time is a moment to squirrel away from the rest of the world wearing cozy pajamas, drinking hot cocoa or mulled wine, reading a book, and, of course, playing the Yule Log on my television. For those non-Americans who have no idea what I'm talking about, the Yule Log is nothing but a broadcast of a burning log in a fireplace, crackling merrily, helping poor apartment dwellers like me pretend for a moment as though they have a fireplace of their own. This year is the 50th anniversary of the Yule Log television broadcast, and it got me thinking, what is a Yule Log? That research ended up sending me down a much tastier path than I had predicted. In fact, I started to learn about the history of the chocolate Yule log, aka the French bouche de Noël, aka that delicious cake roll at my grocery store filled with cream and decorated with tiny leaves and woodland creatures and mushrooms. New Year's diets don't start for another two weeks, so pull up a chair next to your fake fireplace, grab a slice of Christmas cake, and join me as we explore the delicious and surprising history of the Bouche de Noël. It's medieval France, and the night is dark and full of terrors. In the age of electricity in large cities, It's hard to imagine the void outside the door when you're a peasant in a shack in the middle of nowhere, with the wind and the wolves howling outside, with the longest night of the year approaching quickly. Every winter solstice, it seems as though this time night might really go on forever, bringing with it all the evil and terror that comes with darkness. In order to scare off the spirits of the night and make it through until the morning, your family brings in an enormous piece of firewood, big enough to burn through even the longest night. This log is sprinkled with wine and salt to appease the gods, and it burns all night until finally sunrise comes again and a new year begins. The gods are smiling upon you and your family. The sun has returned. Soon, the crops around you will grow again. Spring is coming. Over a thousand years later, in the 19th century, French families still stayed up all night, but they celebrated Christmas, not the winter solstice, and the night was filled with joy instead of fear. You'd be joyful too if you celebrated the way they did. Because after staying up all night and attending a midnight mass at church, French families returned home to celebrate Le Réveillon, or The Awakening, an extravagant feast which would put any Thanksgiving dinner to shame. All across the countryside, dining tables groaned under the weight of seven meatless dishes. Thirteen bread rolls and no fewer than thirteen types of dessert. If there were any wolves howling at the door, it was only because they wanted in on the leftovers. By the end of the 19th century, France entered the industrial age. The great, 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 great grandchildren of those rural peasants were all getting on those newly built railroad lines and moving to Paris. At the same time that the countryside seemed to be shrinking, Parisians naturally decided to make the countryside trendy. Think about the way that today's America idealizes farmers and country music and pickup trucks, despite the fact that 80% of Americans live in urban areas. The same thing was happening in 19th century France. The more and more cosmopolitan Paris became, the more and more Paris emulated the countryside. All of a sudden, it was all the rage to hop on one of the new railroads and head out for a weekend. Just go away from the girls, get away from it all, eat some cassoulet. While they were out visiting the countryside, naturally Parisians started to learn more about the local customs of their country cousins, customs which they tried to recreate back home. Some of those adaptations made the journey to Paris pretty easily. Beif bourguignon. Sure, we can do that. We've got cows. Escargot? As we discussed a few episodes ago, escargot was a huge hit in the cities. It was cheap, nutritious, delicious, and easy shipping to boot. Fondue? Don't mind if I do. Soon, the large but simple meals of Le Réveillon started making their way from Burgundy and Provence into Parisian homes as well. But once those courses crossed the city limits, the simple fish pies of the countryside found themselves transformed into caviar and oysters. And those simple meatless main courses? Oh yes, we, except we like foie gras instead. Oh, let's throw in some escargot as well. Oh, and why not a lobster? Oh, what about a roasted pheasant? Yes, yes, yes. I love the simple quaint country tradition. If that's how the Parisians are approaching the simple fish pie, do we even want to know what they'll do with dessert? Christmas wasn't just an opportunity to reflect on the life of Christ and the miracle of faith. It was an opportunity to indulge in something which was now sweeping the nation. Sugar. Unlike medieval France, when a pound of sugar cost the same as eight entire pigs, Sugar was now, at last, plentiful. Dessert was a must at every dinner, and Paris was developing what it develops best, impossibly fancy versions of stuff. In earlier episodes, we discussed the new middle class of 19th century Paris. They were flush with new money, they were eager for new ways to spend it. Paris obliged by inventing things like restaurants and boutiques and opera houses and, best of all, pastry shops. Now that sugar was just barely cheap enough and Parisians were just barely rich enough, for the first time, pastries became an affordable, everyday luxury. But of course, this is Paris. You can't just eat any sweet thing. You aren't going to walk into a shop on the Rue Rivoli in front of God and the neighbors and just buy any old cookie, you have to buy a treat that's going to knock everybody's socks off at the dinner table, especially at the Great Christmas Feast. The question was, what would you buy, and where? If you were a master pâtissier in 19th century France, you were a small fish in a big sea. By the 1870s, there were over 400 pastry shops to serve just under 2 million Parisians. When I said it was a golden age of Paris, you guys, this is what I meant. What a glorious time to have a sweet tooth. The best pastry chefs in the world are competing desperately for your attention. As one patissier wrote in 1873, in order to succeed in the art of pastry, a youth must have a lively and inventive fancy, one able to originate ideas. For the first time, there was such a thing as a trendy dessert, kind of the, you know, the cupcake shops of the 19th century if you will. One year it was all about Italian meringues, while the next year everybody was trying to get their hands on anything flavored with that mysterious and expensive spice, vanilla. At some point along the way, then, a patissier struck gold. While the Parisians were charmed by their country cousin traditions, and they were more than happy to eat their food, wear their clothing ironically, and spend the weekend at a cozy bed and breakfast, the Parisians weren't about to adopt some of the more rustic habits of the countryside. For example, the traditional, much-beloved country tradition of the Yule Log. If you're a well-to-do bourgeois lady living in a brand new Hausmann apartment building up on the fourth floor, the last thing you're going to do is drag a big hunk of wood big enough to last 12 hours up your narrow staircase. Even if you did, you'd never manage to fit such a massive chunk of wood into your tiny urban fireplace, which is only supposed to handle enough wood to light the room that you're in one enterprising patissier figured out a way to pay tribute to the quaint traditions of a country Christmas without throwing your back out. The bouche de Noël. This masterpiece of 19th century patisserie deserves a closer appreciation, so let's work our way from the delicious inside out. The first thing you'll notice about a traditional bouche de Noël is the fluffy chocolate genoise, or sponge cake, which forms the body of the log. If you've only ever eaten a Yule log from your local grocery store, it's easy enough to gloss over the cake foundation, especially in the 20th century's industrial kitchen. But the key to a big, fat, fluffy genoise is to keep a very close eye on temperature, And as any disappointed fan of the Great British Bake Off can tell you, that is harder than it looks. So imagine having to keep a close eye on temperature in 19th century France. The Genoise cake is traditionally filled with buttercream frosting. And this might include such exotic flavors like coffee, but the most traditional Christmas time filling was, you guessed it, a paste made of chestnuts roasted on an open fire. Finally, the patissier's time to shine came at the very end after the cake and the buttercream frosting is all wrapped up. Now it's time for the cake to be covered with the most exquisitely rendered details, three-dimensional bark icing marzipan mushrooms, frosted leaves, powdered sugar snow, and any other whimsical details the patissier can dream up. One last marzipan elf tucked into the frosting, and out it went into the shop window, fingers crossed. The bouche de Noël was an enormous hit. Within 20 years, the pastry went from an obscure invention to a universal, beloved Christmas treat. And to this day, the bouche de Noël can be found in any self-respecting patisserie in France. Now, as back then, pastry shops compete with each other for customers' attention. They place ads in the newspaper showcasing their particular Yule log decorating style and flavors. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, French families place their pre-orders and stand in an endless line on Christmas Eve to pick theirs up from the bakery of choice. Bouche de Noel aren't only confined to France, either. They crossed the Atlantic with French immigrants and became a huge hit in both Canada and New Orleans. But that's not all. When Vietnam became a French colony, a new taste for sophisticated French pastries developed quickly among wealthy Vietnamese and French expats who were eager to show off their wealth and status. In a country where sugar and white flour and ovens weren't easy to find, purchasing a bouche de Noël from the bakery was a way to show off your taste and refinement, just as it had been for 1870s Parisian ladies. Just like their French predecessors did, Vietnamese pastry chefs improvise and they innovate. They add ingredients like matcha and mango. And it's a huge hit one Vietnamese chain sold over 140,000 Bouches de Noel in 2010 alone. Meanwhile, back in Paris, more and more elite pastry chefs are redesigning their Buche as well, creating abstract forms or using unusual flavors. I saw one this year which was designed to look like a shelf of books. Makes sense to me, those are all, in a way, just a bunch of x logs right? This week, as you enjoy the last few days of holiday cheer, sit down with a slice of Yule log and feel the ancient French tradition drive away the winter blues. I don't know whether it's the magical power of Yule protecting me against the harsh winter winds, or whether it's just the layer of blubber forming on my body from all of this buttercream frosting and cake, but a bit of bouche de Noël is always the perfect way to keep warm. It's also the way to keep happy and to keep looking forward. It says, relax everyone, we're going to make it through. With my deepest thanks to every single one of you listening, I wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Joyeux Noël. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. If you're wondering what I'd like for Christmas, it's easy, more amazing listeners. Help me spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes and mentioning the show on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit. Visit The Land of Desire on Facebook where I will be sharing some great recipes for Bouche de Noël that I came across while I was researching this episode. And if any of you try one out, I really want to see pictures. So thanks so much for your support, and I hope you join me again in two weeks for 2016's final episode, a New Year's extravaganza. Until then, au revoir!